take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. Welcome to our latest episode of Field Preachers. My name is Rachel Gilmore. I'm on staff here at Path One and Discipleship Ministries, and I am super, super excited and blessed that within 24 hours, I reached out for uh, an interview with these guys, and they were willing to join us today. So with us uh, for this episode, we have Michael and George, who have just released uh, their latest book. It's called The Field Guide to Methodist Fresh Expressions. So why don't you guys introduce yourselves a little bit more? I'm Michael Beck. I'm an ordained elder in the Florida Conference of the United Methodist Church. I serve in Wildwood currently. I'm also the cultivator of Fresh Expressions for my district, the North Central District, uh, the best district also, which houses the University of Florida, capital of the Gator Nation. And I also work for uh, Fresh Expressions U.S. nationally. And just uh, George and I together are just rolling out a new doctoral program in Fresh Expressions and Church Renewal at United Theological Seminary. So I jokingly tell people I have like five uh, part-time, full-time jobs for part-time pay. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Well, yeah, George, tell us fun. a little more about, about you. Yeah, well, uh, I'm a follower of Jesus who uh, is privileged to serve in Southwest Florida. And um, I I am a local church guy. I have been privileged to be here. I'm finishing my 24th year, which is a long time in any place. Um, and um, yeah, we have four campuses. Um, our work has been primarily around um, uh, church planting through uh, renovation and renewal and restoration of established or closing churches. Um, and so we've done that a couple of times now, three times. And um, and having a blast. And then we've just been kind of early adopters into the Fresh Expressions ministry and trying to do that from a large church perspective. And what does that mean to create a culture, an environment uh, to uh, release uh, women and men to do fresh expressions in the life of the church? That's amazing. Well, and I noticed in the forward to the book, George, I don't know if you want to say a little bit about it, but I was really struck by you sharing that leading this church, you're at Grace, right? For like 23 years, you realized at some point that attractional model that so many of us have leaned on for growing our churches or reaching new people just wasn't working anymore. When did that happen? And how has the shift from attractional model to more of the fresh expressions um, really borne fruit in your church? So I came to a church that like 85% of churches, Protestant churches in America was in desperate need of renewal. And uh, I'm a student of attractional church, and I don't use that with any negativity. Uh, attractional churches come to church. It's what I went to seminary to learn how to do, preach, uh, do good children's ministry, student ministry, uh, attract people uh, to come in the front doors primarily on Sunday morning uh, to win people to Jesus there, to get them involved in your discipleship system, small groups, Sunday school, you know, Bible studies, all the rest, uh, equip them, release them uh, out into the world to do the ministry of Jesus. And uh, we did that from 1996 uh, until, um, I would say, somewhere around uh, 2000. It was right in the middle of the recession, really. Um, 
uh, from uh, around 2007 to 2009, Grace Church was the fastest growing United Methodist Church in America. We grew by a thousand people during the recession. And that was mostly by adding new campuses and new services. It was not one spot that just blew up. It was, uh, it was a, a distributed, church distributed. Uh, we were early adopters into the uh, multi-site deal. But somewhere as the recession started to kind of slow down, and people started to get back to their new normal. Uh, my observation was uh, that the Barna study was true, that uh, committed Christians were coming to church less often. I, we started to see that uh, pretty quickly. And I think it was pretty simply, people had money and time and resources that they didn't have during the recession. And they were, they were going, in our world, and in, in Michael and my world, when you're near Orlando, uh, you go through our church parking lots and you see how many people have the, the annual passes for Disney. Michael actually has one. And, uh, and, and, you know, it gets to Friday and you head to Disney World and you get, you stay on, on site for 89 bucks and you do Disney all day, Saturday and Sunday. And you may or may not catch church at all, uh, in, uh later. Um, but so what we started seeing is that with that trend, plus with just modernity dying and post-modernity, uh, coming into full swing, we just started seeing uh, as millennials were growing up and Gen Zers were growing up that what worked marvelously for the first 15 to 18 years in the last years was working less. I wouldn't say it doesn't work. We still see people every single week who come to know Jesus through the ministry of our church in the attractional models through our, uh, we do about 10 weekend worship services at four campuses distributed. So it still works. And so it's not an either or thing. I mean, Michael and I would fight for, you know, resisting the kind of binary, missional, attractional, inherited church, fresh expression of the church. It is a both and. And in our tradition, we are a conjunctive people. Um, and so it is faith and works. It is a vital piety and, uh, it is a works of mercy. And so, um, uh, what we saw, this is where the kind of the turning point for me was, we finally got all eight cylinders hitting. I mean, hospitality, our coffee was good, worship, our kids' ministry, our, the, 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 even the flower beds were weeded. I mean, you're going like, okay, <laughs> wait for the crowds to come, you know? And it was more of a stream um, then it was a rush. Mm. And so I, the way I put it is we've never done attractional church better and seen less results over the 24 now, almost 24 years that I've been at Grace Church. Um, about that same time, then our bishop invited me to go to a pilgrimage uh, to the UK to visit with the Anglicans and the Methodists and this work of fresh expressions. And uh, uh, all it is is a strategy much like the attractional church is a strategy. Uh, it's a strategy of joining Jesus in his mission in the world. Uh, we believe in our tradition in provenient grace. Michael and I love to go around terrorizing our tribe to say we believe in it. We just do ministry like we don't. <laughs> that, uh, that God is at work every bit as much in a tattoo parlor and at a Moe's grill as he is at Wildwood Church and at Grace Church uh, in, in the sanctuary. So, yeah, that, that's that's our story, and uh, I'm sticking to it. That's amazing. Uh, what about more of your story, Michael, and the story of uh, Wildwood? We've heard all kinds of innovative stuff coming out of this congregation, so tell us more. 
Yeah, so uh, in 2012, um, next to Grace Church, we had the highest increase in attendance in the Florida Conference. Uh, actually, I think we got we beat Grace that, that year because we doubled our congregation the first Sunday just with my family of eight children. <laughs> um, so we were down, this is a congregation that was down, planted in 1881, Methodist Episcopal South. A congregation that had dwindled down to about 30 folks in worship uh, the, our first Sunday. So we quite literally, my wife and I, like doubled the congregation. Um, so this was kind of been my experience that, that this was my third church like this, just significant decades of decline. And I've always just kind of instinctually been a, more of a church planner, really. Um, uh, I'm more operating in apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic gifts most of the time. My wife is more the pastoral shepherd uh, person, so we make a kind of a good combo there. Um, but we just, we had a couple people in the congregation that, you know, had bright eyes and they were willing to support us and experiment with some things. And so I took the door off my office, uh, you know, hinges and put it in the sanctuary and just said, look, I'm not going to be uh, in that office. Um, you know, there's this guy, John Wesley, who said, the world is my parish. I'm going to be out in the community connecting with people because I've been sent here to really pastor community, not just the congregation. If you will come alongside me and help me and, and do this with me, I believe our church can experience, you know, resurrection and new life. So we just kind of follow that Luke 10 blueprint that Jesus gives us. And uh, he says, you know, go out. I'm sending you out. Travel light. Leave your baggage behind. Leave your assumptions behind. It's a it's a missional posture of vulnerability, uh, and go to the people. and And you're dependent upon the people that uh, what he calls a person of peace. And your peace will rest with that person, and their peace will rest on you. So do life with them. Stay at their table. So in the Fresh Expressions movement, we talk about persons of peace as they open the network or the community or a practice. So we met Adrian at Moe's Southwest Grill who said, yeah, you can have church in my Moe's. Uh, you know, we set some boundaries around that. We, we had a big uh, tattoo culture, a lot like Grace. I've been stealing uh, pages out of George's playbook on recovery ministries and sending us to the ones no one else wants or sees. Um, and so a lot of people coming in with tattoos all the time. And, and so we had a person, a piece of the tattoo parlor who owned the shop and said, yeah, you can come in and worship Jesus in my tattoo parlor. I'm not a Christian, but, you know, as long as you get tattoos. And so we, we just started all throughout the community, what we call, you know, George says, you know, don't get stuck in the tyranny of either or, but the both and. Uh, so we did not leave the traditional congregation behind. We've done everything we can to care for them and create teams to do all that while also organizing these teams to plant these fresh expressions of church. We call that a blended ecology. And I think the most powerful example in history, as you know, the Field Preacher podcast, is this guy. Yeah. Um, uh, I loved it. We're vile yeah. together. <laughs> Amen. Who, you know, April 2nd, 1739, which we just celebrated that anniversary, right? This guy, John Wesley, goes out to a field outside of Bristol and starts preaching the gospel and be in church with people that he says, look, nobody's coming to church. I'm going to go be church with them. This movement called Methodism is born. And so we see this as kind of a, a recapitulation or a resurrection of the early uh, Methodist field preaching, you know, going out, being church with people. And I think the, the I'll say one last thing. The, the powerful thing that's happened is we've got 80-year-old pioneers 
who've been saying, you know, pastor, I really would like to do more than just serve on a committee or read liturgy on Sundays. So somebody like Larry, who's almost 80 years old, who likes to take his dog to the dog park, is now a pastor of his own church called Pause of Praise, which we're going to do digitally for the first time today. Um, and he's using his gifts and, and telling, you know, sharing the story of the Bible and having people pray in the dog park. Then we've got Denise, who's been a Christian for less than a year, but says, hey, if Larry can do that thing in the dog park and they got the thing in the burritos and Bibles, I run and I have all these people that I do marathons with and 5Ks. I'm going to start a church called Church 3.1. You know, here's somebody that just prayed for the first time in, in a fresh expression like less than a year ago out loud in front of people. Now she's planting a church uh, around this passion. So it's just releasing the whole people of God, the priesthood of all believers, what Wesley called, you know, the lay preachers. Um, and all these exciting things are happening. And, and the attractional church is benefiting. It, people are coming and, and that's growing as well as, you know, sending and releasing people out to I love that. And I love the emphasis on empowering and equipping the lady to go out because John got into some trouble for that. People didn't like it. But I think that's, you know, we look at historians and they say that's why the Methodist Church grew in America so rapidly. And when we started to institutionalize the church and, you know, and appoint a clergy as opposed to running a circuit, we started dying. So yeah, by reclaiming the Methodist tradition and being more vile. You know, that's what Wesley wrote in his journal after he did the field preaching, because he was not excited about it. I think we saw, you know, how insecure he kind of was prior to doing it, but then seeing how the Holy Spirit worked, he was like, that's it, I'm sold. This field preaching is for me. So that's amazing. And I love, love, love your new book and that it's, you know, a field guide to Methodist fresh expressions. Um, coming from Methodist pastors here who have lived and breathed it and are really leaders in the United Methodist Church with the Fresh Expressions movement. So who are you hoping reads this book and learns from it, mainly clergy or laity or, you know, conference staff? Sure. I'll, I'll kick it off and let George jump in. Our, I think our original concept was for teams of people in churches, and we tried to make it accessible. So in each chapter, we call them downloads because we wanted to kind of challenge even what a book really is, but downloads from the Holy Spirit. So there's a there's a pretty good deep dive theolo- theology, uh, really kind of a recovering some Wesleyan theology and some things that, you know, Leonard Sweet says, Methodism is the greatest story never told. You know, Methodists don't know their own story. So we're trying to bring forward the missional roots of our, of our theology as a renewal movement. Then there's kind of a, a, an application. So what this looks like today. Then there's these things called field stories uh, where we kind of talked about here's real things with real people happening all over the country. Then George provides a missiography in the same way like that Wesley had his journals, which was both a a missional, like he's furthering the movement with it, and it's biographical. So he's talking about his spiritual journey very openly, which George has done in incredible ways. And then there's these little field kit exercises at the end of each chapter. So a team could take those. You know, do these little exercises, answer the questions to try to actually start fresh expressions in their That's incredible. So it could really be a benefit to anybody. And as we're all kind of at home a lot, I fe- I don't know about you, but I'm reading way more now than I ever did before. Yes. <laughs> so it's a good chance to really be prepared to kick something off. I mean, do we have to wait till we're able to gather again in dog parks or doing yoga before we can start these? I mean, George, Michael, how are you nurturing your fresh expressions 
that are currently in existence? And can people start new ones that are virtual? Uh, my, my response is, is, is a cautious yes. Uh, Michael may disagree with this, and uh, we're, we're very comfortable with being in different spaces. Um, uh, my, my, I'm a cautious yes. I, I believe profoundly, and Michael does as well, um, that one of the things that's been lost most in our, in, in our uh, not just our Wesleyan uh, tradition, but really the Christian tradition in the West has been this whole, the incarnation. Uh, uh, it, is, um, it is God wading into the crap of this world in Christ. Uh, that is, that's the core of the gospel. Uh, you, you know, when we do the Eucharist, um, uh, we, they're words we say, but I don't, I'm not convinced they're words we live. Uh, you know, we, we, we talk about being uh, the body given and the blood shed, and then we go and put ourselves behind our little sequestered offices and our little sequestered uh, uh, gated communities behind our garage doors that we shut and we don't know our neighbors. Um, and, and so when I say a cautious yes during uh, what may end up being, you know, 16 weeks, 18 weeks of, of sequestering, is that the gospel is lived uh, eyeball to eyeball, knee to knee, sweat to sweat, life to life. Um, so we're not, not going to put life on hold for 16, 18 weeks. We're going to do what we're doing right now, which is have these meetings. Um, but it will never replace um, sitting around a table at the Suncoast Community Center uh, with a well-cooked meal uh, at a dinner church um, in the midst of the second largest trailer park in Southeast America uh, with people stuck in generational poverty and addiction and breaking bread with them and hearing their stories and embracing them and all the rest. So I give a cautious yes. I, I think we're going to innovate in these days. Um, we're going to have to, um, both inherited and missional church, uh, uh, fresh expressions of church. Um, but this uh, this will nu nuance our ministry into the future. I think it is a kind of a Gutenberg moment, a Gutenberg press moment. You know, I mean, I think it, it it'll innovate, but uh, it, it'll it'll shift us. But it'll never do away with life on life uh, ministry. So I give it a cautious yes. Great. And I'll affirm, yeah, I affirm everything that George just said, and I'll give it a little more enthusiastic yes, um, because it is kind of like an uh, innovator's, entrepreneur's dream world right now. And I don't want to minimize um, the, the pain and the loss and the real people that are affected. My wife and I have three adult children that all work as um, nurses, um, and they are right now on the front lines, and we're hearing very scary things about their workspace and lack of gloves and masks and all that stuff. So, and my son, my son too, Michael. So, yeah, and Jordan's son. And we have people in our congregation that are have been tested. Uh, we have people that are waiting for results. We have people in that our network that have died from the virus. And so, wow. uh, all of that. And I want to say I'm very, very excited and hopeful um, for the church. And I think every once in a while, Mother Nature. Uh, shows up and shows us who's boss and gives us a profound opportunity for a reset. 
Um, and there's been a lot of things that I've struggled with my whole ministry about the church, like a clergy caste system. And just, there's a lot of things about it that I've just kind of you know, lived in a state of frustration about that I see kind of changing. Now, I don't have answers per se right now because our pressure expressions are very high touch. George was describing face to face, like we're getting a tattoo together. We're in that space, you know, worshiping sharing tattoo stories. We're in Moe's Southwest Grill, breaking the tortilla, sharing the cup, very high touch, all that. So we were just thrown into this like total curveball. What do we do? Because we we really, in the book, we talk about first, second, and third places from this sociologist, Ray Oldenburg. We really harness the power of the third place. Um, those neutral territories where people gather for communion, play, parks, and restaurants, and tattoo parlor, whatever that is in your community. So we don't have those any. Those are literally shut down. So what do you do? So we had to kind of go back to the book of Acts, recover this idea. Well, in the beginning, Acts 2, the church met at their dinner table or the temple. Temple's destroyed in 70 AD. Where's the church meet? All through the book of Acts, the living room, the dinner table. So we created living room church. Which So we moved in this totally distributed uh, church. And I've seen these amazing two kind of trends happening. We actually partnered together our younger folks and our older folks in these reverse mentoring relationships. We have our younger folks, teenagers and stuff saying, you know, we feel like we have something to give and never really space to offer it. We have older people saying, I'd really like to pass down this wisdom that I've lived out the last, you know, many decades to the next generation, but I don't feel like they listen to me. So we created these uh, uh, partnerships where we have young people teaching older folks how you make a Facebook account. (laughs) <laughs> how you use like YouTube and we have older folks, we've asked them, you know, what's one thing that you would pass down wisdom to the next generation? We're going to partner you up. So that's one thing we've done. And we've gone as digital as possible with our fresh expressions. Um, like today at five o'clock, we're going to have a digital pause of praise for the first time. So we just invited people zoom, bring your animals, you know, we'll have them on the screen. Let's show what our animals can do tricks. Um, you know, we'll have a little Devo and prayer together. Um, so it doesn't, I, I don't think, uh, fully, you know, replace what we can do when we're face to face. But I have heard people saying, um, as we're worshiping living room church, we have multiple people in their living rooms and they bring an offering into the whole worship service, uh, rather than us. We didn't do the empty sanctuary kind of thing, but we're just, you know, we're in our living rooms too. We're quarantined too. So here we are and let's have church together. Um, but these folks are, experimenting and innovating and, and, and finding different ways to do this um, and, and finding, you know, to see your face and your eyes and your, and to have a connection, it really does the soul good. In the book, we started to really explore the, the work of sociologist Manuel Castells. And so he talks about the network society. He talks about this idea of real virtuality that for emerging generations, virtual reality is reality spend 10 hours a day on your screen it's a primary form of connection and all that so we actually we didn't foresee a global pandemic you know like not intentionally in any way but that stuff is in the book and those people who've been reading it so far have been kind of giving feedback like this is really helpful because for us fresh expression pioneers we've kind of been living in this world for a while and i know the future has come overnight and many churches are like wow we got to go distribute it we got to innovate it's like desperation is the seedbed of innovation. But 
we've kind of already been in this space and having struggles like our lay people, we can't be at all these fresh expressions. So can they serve communion when we're not there? Um, you know, we've been wrestling with these issues and now we're wrestling with digital communion. Okay. And so there, there's a lot of things that we're just kind of you know, working through, but I will say that we've seen some incredible, like really two streams of, of goodness coming out of it. One is like old school, school folks learning new school ways to love each other through digital you know, space and all that. And younger folks learning old school ways like uh, phone trees and dropping a care package off on Miss Lorna's porch, uh, who's, you know, almost 90 years old and, you know, um, calling people and, and actually making a phone call and writing a handwritten letter um, to somebody who's in isolation. And so all of those two things and, and really finding the value of our place again. So as we paused and broken free of the 24 seven work anxiety cycle, I'm hearing people saying, you know, they're, they're taking a posture of placefulness, looking at their place and like, Oh, there's flowers here and birds and people wave. I have to stay six feet away from them. But so it's kind of this, this return to like looking at our neighborhood again, almost is happening. I'm just excited. I, I don't think, well, I hear people saying, when will we go back to normal? And I'm saying, I hope never, because mm-hmm. I was not real content with the normal that the church had before. And we've been in decline as the Methodists, you know, for uh, years. But I hope that we, there's a new normal. It's never going to go back to that fully the way it was. Um, and, and maybe that's a good thing because the spirit can breathe forth a, a new church for a new mission field. Absolutely. Like God is not behind this in any way. He did not cause it, but it, right. it's given us an opportunity to actually practice the Sabbath, which most yes. of us have never done to just take a day and disconnect. Um, but I'm with you guys that, you know, where third spaces are now gone, people still long to connect. And so trying to use social media can hold us over until we're able to actually hug and and break bread together. And you can't do a virtual baptism. Or I don't know. That's the one that I haven't seen. That's a sacrament that's really. We haven't done that one yet. <laughs> I'll pour it. And then you have your, you know, friend dump water on the other side. Like, what is that? How does that work? I don't, I don't know about that. That's good. That can work. <laughs> but it is a great opportunity for us as people of faith to figure out what church looks like now and what to hold on to moving forward and what can just die and go away that, I mean, Yaroslav Pelikan, I think, said uh, traditionalism is the dead faith of living people and tradition is the living faith of dead people. So what from our tradition do we take with us and what traditionalism can we finally release um, to our history? So, so Rachel, you might know that we have a pretty extensive recovery ministry. And and so I was having conversations with our we have uh, three Christian recovery communities that are at three of our four sites. And then we're deeply engaged in traditional recovery. Uh, we don't feel like we need to save the people in traditional recovery. As a matter of fact, they, they might save the church, if, but that's all another <laughs> uh, podcast. Um, uh, they have a better spirituality than the typical United Methodist Church. Uh, um, they just cuss and smoke, and so most Christians don't like that. But um, lest I digress... <laughs> So I've been checking with our, our recovery leaders and saying, I, I asked uh, Arlene, Pastor Arlene, who leads our recovery ministries, and, and understand that in our little universe, um, we have 
we have almost as many people going to recovery ministries as coming to our worship services. And like within a few hundred, uh, uh, like I don't know, 13, 1400 people in recovery and somewhere around, you know, 22, 2300 in worship. So, I mean, they're, they're comparable numbers. And um, I, I've asked Arlene, I said, I've been deeply concerned that people are going to go out and use. And, um, uh, you know, Michael and I both come out of our own personal recovery story, and, and we, kept, we both grew up in, 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 in families that uh, were steeped in, in addictions. Um, and so we, we know the pain firsthand. Uh, we've very friends and family and others uh, from overdose. And so times like this, you know, what anxiety is high. And Arlene said she's seeing the exact opposite happen. She's seeing more people step into recovery virtually than, than and, and, and not hearing the stories of relapse. So it's a very interesting piece. Um, and uh, I'm not sure we, we have grasped what this new space is, could mean. Um, and I'm, I'm with Michael. I hope we never go back because I have this fear that attractional only folks um, uh, see this as a gasp of hope. Um, I've got some of my attractional only pastor friends that Michael and I know and love well that are posting things like, you know, we had 10,000 people watching online and I want to go. You had 8,000 people who kind of went through your page on, on their way to hear Steve Furtick. Let's not. <laughs> they, they don't, it doesn't count that. And so we, we, we build this, we build this um, false uh, narrative that, that, that somebody kind of coming across Grace Church's worship service um, is, is a disciple of Jesus. And I said, no, that, no, let's, let's not, let's not use, let's not use this new living room reality as somehow a new way of, Measuring so that we feel good about what we do and validating what we do uh, when it when they're all false they're they're they're, they're false uh, measurements so that's that's one of my fears. Yeah, good. completely agree. Yeah, I I think the United Methodist Church should just put a moratorium on vital signs because yeah. it's going to run the gamut as to what a pastor determines is their you know worship service numbers on on a Sunday. And what does that mean? And does that really tell us how effective and healthy our faith community is? You know, what are the metrics we should be looking at? Maybe this is a chance to rethink that entirely, too. Yeah. And I've told Michael this. A defining moment for me was uh, in 2006, I had celebrated 10 years here. And uh, my Timothy uh, Wessels came to work with us. And and he said, um, he said, I want to introduce you to a guy. Um, that's a, a coach and he introduced me to this guy and this guy's just wrecked my life. He's a lay person. Um, and uh, we, we actually hate those words, lady and pastor and Michael and I both have a disdain for them, but he happens to be a lay person uh, in our group. And uh, he, um, he said to me, uh, would you be okay uh, if everybody didn't sit in rows and look at you every Sunday? And I said, no, Oh, but I put another word in front of no uh, when I said it to him. And he said, uh, he said, okay, let me reframe it. He said, would you be okay 
with people not sitting in rows looking at you, if there was a better way of making disciples? And I said, I hate you. That's what I told him. I said, I hate you. Because I couldn't say no to that. And I, I use that, that story as kind of a metaphor that for many of us, and this is where people like Michael have been a gift to the body of Christ. Many of us have fallen in love with people sitting in rows looking at us. And if Jesus were to say to you and me, there's, there's at least other ways. You don't have to put the word better in front of it. There's other ways to make disciples of Jesus that are as good and maybe better than everybody sitting in rows. Now, Michael and I both spend a large amount of our time getting ready for people to sit in rows and look at us. I don't think it's, again, we are conjunctive people. Um, and so we put energies into that and we put energies into these, creating these new third spaces. And I, I wonder again, if these days can be another recalibration for the church to open itself up to this as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So many things to ponder and question and refine. What is discipleship? What is worship? What is connection? What is community? What are the sacraments? Um, it's mind boggling and frightening and yet such a gift. And I'm so hopeful about the future of the church, not just the Methodist church um, post coronavirus. So, and I'm grateful that your book, the field guide can, can offer insight as we head into these uncertain waters of our future. But, um, but you guys are both a gift to the church for sure. And to the communities that you serve. So I'm so grateful for you, your witness, the stories that you've shared in this book, the time that you shared with me today. And um, guys, I just encourage all of our listeners to check out a field guide to Methodist Fresh Expressions. Um, thank you guys so much. Any final closing words or thoughts or anything um, you want to share with us? I'll throw something out just to piggyback off what George said. This is a profound opportunity for us to reset discipleship in the home space. And so all we have left is the first place, you know, living room church. And what we see people leaning into is, you know, I haven't really had to think about how to disciple my kids because the, the, the idea has usually been I'm passing them off to the children's minister, or the youth pastor or whatever. So one of the ways I see us really being able to harness digital flows, Manuel Castells, the space of flows, is to offer resources to help people like me who are now homeschooling our children and, and we're like the only person they see all day long, which, you know, pray for them. But how do we how do we become the primary discipleship engine for the church right in our home space? Um, so I see that as a profound opportunity. And I see that in the midst of this upcoming Easter. I, I just want to give a word to all of my pastor and lay friends out there, pioneers. Um, let's be sensitive. I think Holy Saturday is the most underutilized resource, theological resource in the church. Like we're in the tomb. There's going to be people on Easter Sunday who still have loved ones that are in makeshift morgues that they haven't been able to put in the ground yet and do a proper burial. So what does our Easter proclamation mean in the midst of that? And how do we kind of embrace a time of liminality and tomb time? Like we're going to be in the tomb with Jesus for a while. And that's okay. The disciples, they saw Jesus risen, but then there was this period of time where they had no idea what was coming next and they were waiting for the spirit. And so I, I'm grateful that Easter is a season. And how we think about that going forward, I think is, is really important. How we utilize the tomb time, which is a time to ask better questions uh, and to rest. 
and to wait for what only God can do. To be sensitive to the pain and the agony out there and not try to create the shortcuts. And the... That's beautiful. Um, George, any final words, thoughts, tips for other pastors? pastors pioneers? Yeah, I, I just, you know, uh, Michael and I, uh, I said at the beginning of the book when I wrote the foreword that uh, uh, Michael is an, an ape, an apostle, prophet, evangelist. Uh, who has shepherd teacher sensibilities, and I am a shepherd teacher with apostle prophet evangelist sensibility. And I would say I think the vast majority of us in ministry are shepherd teachers. It's it's who we cultivate. Um, I've said that we either domesticate or run off the apes, um, and then they go start their own mini denominations and reach hundreds of thousands of people. But that's a whole other sermon. Uh, and so we need to we need to figure out a way in which uh, we can release uh, the apes. And I think the vast majority of people in ministry are shepherd teachers. So that being said, I want to just speak a word to my shepherd teacher friends who who lead the inherited church and say, "Hey, don't be afraid of this movement. I mean, this is this is the movement of the Spirit. God's doing a new thing. Create um, some some uh, uh, both personal and corporate humility to say." You know, let, let me learn from Michael. Michael wrote ninety five percent of this book. Um, I, I did a few little things. Um, he is the he's the thought leader in all of this, and he is my mentor when it comes to these kinds of things. Um, and, and so, so for those of us that lead inherited churches, um, I've been writing emails to community leaders, um, and uh, during this and uh, during the coronavirus, um, uh, I've made our church available to become a surge hospital. Uh, if we, in the next two to four weeks, hit the peak and the hospitals are full, we have these big church buildings that are sitting empty and these parking lots that are sitting empty. And I wanted to be the first one in line to say the Church of Jesus is going to be the ones that will open up their facilities and will take our chairs out and will give you, and all we ask of you is to allow us to shepherd people and to chaplain people while we're there. And I've got nothing but positive response. Will that door open? I don't know. But it's that kind of innovation that we're going to have to step into in moments like these for both the inherited church and the first expressions of church to, to expand the movement of Jesus during this time. God is not concerned. We might be, but God is not concerned. So let's stay on mission. I love that. It sounds like you guys are celebrating Monday, Thursday early. You're living into that new commandment to love one another. Working what does that look like in this time? Find our voice and be the hands and feet of Jesus. So um, I'm grateful for you, for Grace, for Wildwood, um, for everything. And I hope um, I'll be praying for you. Blessings on you and your continued ministry in this really difficult uh, time. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Well, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this latest episode of Field Preachers. If you have any questions at all for George or Michael or want more information on where you can get their book, uh, feel free to email me at rgilmore at umcdiscipleship.org. Thanks so much. Bye. Field Preachers podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.